Hey there, did I surprise you? I release episodes of this show every other week. That's two episodes a month, right? So why do we have an episode here in the off week? Well, there's this company called Cyber Reason who are big fans of this show and they wanted to bring you an extra episode. So a deal was made, which means this entire episode is brought to you by Cyber Reason. I've never done anything like this before. And so I want to be clear. This episode is only here because Cyber Reason sponsored it. But I'm excited because it's a fantastic story that links back to one of my most popular episodes. You're going to hear from their CEO, who has quite the backstory. And later in the episode, we're going to hear a story from their threat research team, who investigates and uncovers malicious activity. And they'll tell us about a time when they found a threat actor lurking in someone's emails. They spent months tracking that threat actor, which they called Mole Rats in the Cloud. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. This episode is sponsored by Mint Mobile. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Need help escaping from your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages? Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com darknet. That's mintmobile.com darknet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com darknet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Okay, so let's get started. Um, can you just tell us your name and who are you? Hi, I'm Lior Div, CEO and co-founder of Cyberism. Yeah, I got the CEO of Cyberism on for this. I'm not messing around here, going right to the top. But the reason why I wanted to talk with Lior is not so much to hear about his company, but I'm fascinated with what he did before that. But basically, my story starts at the age of 16. I, you know, for years, I really wanted to be a combat pilot. And so here's the thing. Lior grew up in Israel, and it's mandatory for everyone in Israel to serve in the military. So he knew he was going in and was hoping he would be picked to fly jets. So basically, there is a very rigorous kind of uh, list of tests uh, that you need to go through. Um, so at the beginning, uh, we were, I think, probably a thousand people uh, that uh, doing the first test. Uh, I did not knew back then kind of the test is for which unit or for what occupation specifically. Um, after that, they, they cut it by half and it was 500 people. Uh, then from the 500, they cut it again to 100 people. From the 100 people, they choose 20 people. And out of the 20, they choose kind of four. He did not get assigned to become a combat pilot, though. Lior was assigned to work in unit 8200. So at the beginning, I was uh, very disappointed uh, because, you know, I, I had a very clear vision of what I want to do. Um, uh, hindsight uh, 2020, I, I'm super happy that uh, I was chosen to, to go to the 8200 unit and not to, to do other things. Uh, I think that uh, in a sense, uh, kind of, uh, they knew better than I am what I'm better at and direct me to this direction. Uh, I think that after all the tests that they did, they know you very well. I I'm joking sometimes and I'm saying probably they know you better than you know yourself. So no matter what you're assigned to do in the Israeli military, you must first do basic training. You have to wear the military gear, do your push-ups and running and learn how to use a weapon and that sort of thing. But once all that's done, he reported for duty with Unit 8200 
which is sort of like Israeli's version of the NSA. Back then, you know, I did not knew that uh, we're talking about the 8200 unit. Uh, it was super classified. This is before the days that uh, you could read uh, all about this unit uh, on Wikipedia. Um, I think that uh, only a month after uh, I joined uh, the army, I realized that uh, we're talking about this unit and kind of starting to understand what uh, the unit is all about. Uh, this unit is basically focusing the field of uh, signal intelligence. So he joined Unit 8200 back in the late 90s. And yeah, it was a very secret organization back then. Not only did the world not know about it, but even people who worked in 8200 could not even tell their family what unit they were working in. And as a kid, Lior was fascinated with wireless technology and especially how cell phones worked. And for me, it was fascinating because it's like all those things that I was fascinated as a kid to really understand how things work and try to manipulate them. Uh, suddenly there is kind of a, a full unit that focusing on, on this field uh, in a very smart people and very creative. Uh, but the story is not uh, ending there, it's just starting there. The unit have a very unique way to uh, take people uh, right off, uh, how, out of high school and basically teach them all the things that they need to do uh, in order to be an expert in something. And at the beginning, you're not an expert, but but you gain your knowledge. So in my case, uh, it basically was six months of a very, very rigorous um, um, training that every week we were learning something different. Um, and in the end of this week, you, you need to have a test. Uh, if you pass the test, uh, you can go home. If not, you stay and you need to pass the test. There is no option not to pass it. You end up to have kind of a very, very uh, large understanding and knowledge uh, when it comes to technology. Uh, of everything from, you know, how cellular network works, how the internet works, uh, you know, how computer works and what do you need to know in order to write a Python script, uh, uh, write code and so on and so forth. He can't go into specifics about what he did there. But what's public knowledge about Unit 8200 is that they're the signals intelligence branch of the Israeli military. So they're code makers and code breakers. And in the modern era, they're using computers and technology to collect intelligence, which sometimes means hacking into the adversary. Lior was part of an advanced persistent threat or nation state actor. And from the inside, he was learning a lot about how cyber attacks work. He spent six years in Unit 8200. The requirement is only to stay like a year or two, but Lior was really into it, so he stayed longer. He was promoted to officer and even captain before leaving. The 8200, that was kind of the beginning of uh, my careers. So after six years in, uh, in the army, I went to the university. Uh, and over there, it's kind of in the reverse order. You're getting your, your knowledge or the theoretical knowledge that you need, but probably you already know the majority of it because of your hands-on experience. From there, he got a job at a tech startup, which got bought out by a larger company. And then basically I established my own company. This company eventually was uh, a company that focused in the field of uh, hacking, cracking, reverse engineering, uh, you, you name it. Uh, and eventually this, this company uh, was uh, providing services to different government agencies. This company would provide services for intelligence agencies in Israel. And so Lior got to work with some pretty secret and classified missions there, learning advanced ways to hack, crack, reverse engineer, and more, and providing these services to intelligence agencies. So uh, the, the work that uh, we used to do is, um, the, uh, sometimes I'm joking about it, is take things that by definition that they are impossible and make them possible. Usually what's happening, you have a mission, uh, that you need to get information or you need to manipulate information or you need to gain access to a specific uh, type of uh, knowledge. Uh, and in order to get it, first you have to understand where these knowledges exist. Uh, but then once you understand that thing, uh, you, you have to plan and execute an operation, uh, basically soup to nuts. For example, you, you will have a team that focus in the uh, deception, meaning that if you want to go into an asset and collect information, uh, but you know that they are going to protect themselves very good. 
Okay, I find this interesting. When hackers use deception as part of their methods, Lior's team had a mission to get into someone's computer, but if he just launches an attack from his office, that can easily be traced back to him, so he doesn't want to do that. The target can't know who he is, so he has to be tricky. And one way to be deceptive is to get his team to distract the target. Let's say that they're doing a massive DDoS attack on them. They will think that this is what's happening, but on the back end of, of this DDoS attack, actually there is the real hacking going on and somebody has managed to uh, install, let's say, a piece of software on one of their machine and have the initial access. Ah, that's an interesting way to do it. When you're breaking into an adversary's computer, you want to be as quiet and sneaky as possible, right? Well, Lior here decided to do the opposite. He wanted to ring alarms, but he wanted to ring so many alarms that when he did break into the computer, he would just be able to hide in the noise, which is one way to get in undetected. But but usually most of the stories are, are stopping when we're talking about the initial access. But in reality, the penetration, the first act of going in and had a foothold in an environment, th this is just the beginning of an operation. That's not the end. Uh, usually from that point, there is a very lengthy process that you have to do in order to first understand where did you land, uh, what asset do you have, and then to the ability to move from one machine to another machine in order to keep map the environment. And the most important piece is to really locate the data that you need and start to collect it. Uh, even once you find the data and you manage to collect it, uh, the operation is not ended because then you have to exfiltrate the data outside of organization. And that's by itself can be a separate operation uh, to do because just to get the data, this is one thing, but the ability to, to take it out, it's another thing. But, but this is another kind of false uh, notion that people think that operation is starting and ending and then hackers goes out and that's it. But in reality, when you talk about uh, government against government, uh, once you manage to go in, uh, you want to stay in. You don't want to go out. And you want to have the ability to keep collecting information and you want the ability to, to keep doing it. And even if somebody finds you and you need to clear the environment and go out, you, you want to make sure that you have a, a backdoors to go in every time again and again. According to Lior's bio, it says he's an expert in hacking operations, forensics, reverse engineering, malware analysis, cryptography, and evasion. Yeah, ev evasion. That's the practice of not being caught or stopped. Like evading antivirus detections and hiding your tracks and being unseen in the network. But yeah, looking back at the experience he got from being in Unit 8200 and then formal studies of computer science at a university and then working with intelligence agencies to conduct secret missions... Yeah, I'd say Lior is an expert hacker. As part of uh, my time in those different, you know, units, um, I received the Medal of Honor um, for kind of one of, uh, it was a very strategic uh, operation that uh, we needed to plan and, and execute. Uh, needless to say that we cannot go to the details of it. Maybe one day we will be. Uh, but for me, it was uh, fascinating uh, to understand that uh, with enough uh, creativity and, and ingenuity, uh, you, you can manipulate almost any network that exists out there and almost kind of bend physics uh, to your benefits. Um, and for me, uh, to, to be part of this type of uh, you know, capabilities, it's kind of proving uh, to yourself, but not, it's not just about me, it's about the team that we were working together, that if you really want to achieve something and, and you have the time and resources and creativity, uh, you can almost bend physics uh, to your benefit. Uh, and I think that in, in that situation, we managed to do that. Uh, I was super proud of, of, of the team and you know the execution of the mission back then. Now, what's interesting is Lior was helping the Israeli intelligence units when Stuxnet was going on. If you're not familiar with Stuxnet, check out episode 29. But this was an attack on an Iranian nuclear enrichment facility in order to thwart their enrichment process. And this virus literally made its way into the centrifuges to degrade them, which is just phenomenal because nothing in the enrichment facility was connected to the internet. So how could hackers get all the way into the centrifuges and then have this malware run all by itself without any remote control? That's just incredible. 
Now, of course, Stuxnet is classified super tight, but the circumstantial evidence shows that the U.S. and Israel were behind this attack. So I just wonder if Lior had anything to do with that. But of course, I can't ask him. But he does think that Stuxnet changed the world. I think that Stuxnet was the first time that people got a real demonstration of how you can leverage uh, software and code in order to achieve uh, military or government goals. That, that was the first time that people managed to see kind of in a large scale uh, the ability to, to leverage it um, in order to, to create a link between the uh, cyber world uh, into the physical world and actually to achieve results in the physical world uh, while le- you're leveraging software. Uh, till that point, it was like no real big demonstration of this capability. It was a lot of theoretical one. We're talking about an isolated network, air-gapped, that has no connection to the internet. Then it's become almost like a magic. The fascinating thing was that uh, this uh, virus or worm was uh, not uh, manually operated, meaning it was dormant. And once it's understood that it's uh, on the target machine, it started to run automatically and and do whatever it's need to do. Zero communication to the outside world. So the combination of all those things together kind of uh, created, I I believe, sparked the imagination of people. And for me and my two co-founders, we just knew that uh, from that moment, people will understand that there is a different type of problem out there, that we're not talking about IT security anymore, that when there is attackers that kind of really determined to go after a target, they will be able to do that. And we knew from our kind of personal background that uh, this is a reality and it's not a mystery. So for us, we decided that uh, this is time to to basically uh, do something because we knew to, that till that moment, uh, the adversary has an advantage. And we said to ourselves, we have to reverse the adversary advantage. We have to give back the power to, to the defenders uh, in order to do something. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, we said, look, we're going to take all the, the massive amount of years that we have on really understand how hackers works, like really, you know, by viewing it from the... Uh, first row seat and take all the knowledge that we have and to to be able to create something new, a new mindset. And what he determined is defenders don't have enough indicators to detect attacks. I mean, if Lior was able to bypass antivirus, evade intrusion detection tools, and then plant himself in a system for a long period of time without being detected, then yeah, he knows defenders are unable to detect him. And what's more, he knows exactly where to look to be detected. So while traditionally defending teams look for indicators of compromise, which could be a known bad IP address or malicious packets or malware present, Lior and his team started looking for malicious indicators of behavior, which are signs that a malicious actor is conducting their operation. So basically we invented a new method and the method is, is operation-centric and we call it the MALOP, uh, the malicious operation approach. The MELOP approach basically assumed that hackers has many steps to do in an environment. This is not just the act of penetrating into the environment. And we're going to meet the hackers whenever they are. So every step that they're going to do, we're going to anticipate the step and we're going to be there and collect information before they're doing anything. So in a sense, think about it that you just put a camera in every room, every door, uh, and you record everything. And you know that if you're starting to see a behavior that it's bad, you can say, hey, right now there is a malicious operation going on here. So it's not about the malware, it's about the malop that you want to find. It's not about the gun, it's about the people that's using the gun. I like this. This sounds like user behavior analytics to me. And this is where you watch to see what users typically do and then alert when they do something that's out of their typical activity. Like if Charles from accounting typically accesses the same six systems every day to do his work and then suddenly starts trying to connect to some other people's computers that he's never connected to before ever, this behavior is abnormal and worth looking into. So basically what you need, you need the ability to collect massive amount of data in real time and then analyze the data as the data is coming through the system and to make quick decision that can uh, rely on a lot of data that we collected from the past. 
uh, but this technology was not exist. So basically, between 2012 to mid 2015, we invested heavily of building a new uh, technology. This is a gra- in-memory graph processing technology that this is kind of the secret sauce behind cyberism. Uh, many people think that we are uh, just an endpoint company, but in reality, if you look behind the curtain, we're a big data analytic company that can really analyze massive amount of data in real time and to find malicious operation in organization and not just a malware. And so Cyber Reason was born. Lior and his co-founders developed this method for collection and analysis. In order for this to work effectively, he needs to install a little tool on every computer in a company to collect data and send it to Cyber Reason. This is called endpoint detection. Actually, I think they call it endpoint protection because the tool doesn't just detect, but also stops attacks. And they got this thing up and running. Cyber Reason was officially ready and they started telling people about their solution. It was... Uh a big cellular network that approached us and said, look, we think that we are under attack. Um, we're not sure. We see artifacts. We have every technology that exists out there, but we cannot point the finger of what's really going on. Okay, their first customer. They're seeing some weird activity and they think a hacker was in the network, but they couldn't find him. So it was go time for Cyber Reason. This was the first real test. Time to get in their network, install this software on every computer in the whole company, and see if this method of detection actually works. But this was a big company. It took us uh, a few days to deploy 50,000 uh, sensors on every uh, basically machine that they have, uh, on-premise, in the cloud, you know, everything that they own. Uh, the system starting to run, and for us, that was kind of the first demonstration to see It's uh, live. They got everything installed and were collecting tons of data from this company and analyzing it. But all was quiet. Uh, The the first days after we installed the system, uh, we did not saw anything. Um, And we asked them, it's like, did you guys install it on every machine that you have? And it took them a while to to admit that they did not install it everywhere. Ah, right. I get a kick out of this because some companies only focus their security on certain systems in the network. This reminds me of a personal story. For a while, I was a security engineer, and I was collecting logs and analyzing them for malicious activity. And I found this one system was showing signs of infection, and I reported it to the IT team. And you know what they said? That's impossible, because that IP doesn't exist on our network. And so I traced the packets all the way back to where the system was, and I showed them where it was, and they still didn't believe me. They didn't take any action on fixing this infected system because they were sure there was no such computer in their network with that IP. But after a few weeks of insisting that it does exist, they finally took a look and found it. It was a computer that was not authorized to be plugged into the network, and it wasn't using the IP scheme the company uses. And that's a big problem that some companies faced. They have no idea what computers are even in their network. So anyway, Lior was able to convince this company they needed to install the endpoint software on all the computers. Once they decided to deploy it everywhere, immediately we started to see those artifacts of hacking operation or malicious operation going on. Uh, For us, it was massive excitement because that was the first time that we saw a large-scale attack on a massive network. Think about it, it's 50,000 endpoints connected. Uh, it's a cellular network, so it's very big. Uh, we, we were ecstatic um, because we knew that this is not just a proof that the system works. This is a proof that the method of finding malicious operation is better than just to try to find uh, you know, this tool or that tool. Because they saw the tools that the hackers used, but they could not tailor it to a story in order to be able to say, hey, this is the story of what's going on right now. So in a sense, the malicious operation for us is the ability to tell a story of what hackers are doing inside your environment. And the most important thing is to prevent them of doing it. Were you on that call when you called to tell them, okay, we found a hacker in your network? Yeah. it's. Uh, the, well, how'd that go? The, the call with them, it, it was a very interesting call because... We basically told them, look, we know that there is adversarial activity right now. Uh, we, we, by then, we managed to prove that this is a group uh, from China that doing it. It reached to the point that we, we knew who is the person that write the code. Uh, the people that wrote the code, they made a major mistake. And in one of the files that they compiled, that they leave the debugs 
uh, basically comments. Uh, and we managed to reverse engineer and see all their comments. And, and that enabled us to t- tie it back to a company in China that later on it's enabled us to tie it back to specific individual that was the owner of it. And then we managed to prove that it was the Chinese uh, government behind uh, this attack. For us, it was fascinating. Uh, on the call, we, we kind of came, you know, with the full presentation of, hey, this is the group that attacking you. This is what they are doing. This is how they are doing it. Um, and they kind of, at the beginning, uh, did not really believe us. I think that the turning point in the conversation was when uh, Jonathan, my co-founder, um, said to them, look, uh, we know that they stole the key to the castle. Basically, they have Uh, the password, the admin password for, uh, you know, every system that you have. And, and they started to laugh and they said, look, we replaced uh, the, the admin password two days ago. It can't be. And basically he gave them the password. And then I think that it was like almost three minutes of quiet in the call. Uh, and then they realized that it's, it's not just we managed to find those group of hackers. We really managed to identify every step Of the thing that they did all the way to you know to, to understand which password they're using um, and this is kind of the hackers use and they in that point of time they just understood that they are owned this was a success their first customer and not only did they find this adversary but they were also able to figure out who why and what data was touched in the network cyber reason had spent three years getting to this point and now they knew their product worked and started building all kinds of extra tools and services on top of that. Like, not only do they have a tool to detect what malicious activity is happening in the network, but they also have a full response team to go in and fix those issues too. And then on top of that, they have a threat intelligence team to do research on emerging threats. We are not just know what's going on out there, meaning what's going on with each and every one of the attack group. What we're trying to do in a very aggressive way is to find uh, how they're hacking, to find their tactics and techniques and to expose them to the world. Because once you do something like this, uh, you basically uh, throw the attackers back, uh, sometimes half a year, sometimes a year, depends what you manage to find. So uh, don't be surprised that it's like uh, every once in a while, Cyberism is releasing kind of a major uh, research that basically uh, uh, kill the ability of this group to operate now for another year. Uh, we're a big believer that that's make, uh, you know, our customers uh, base safer, but it's make the world uh, a, a safer world. Uh, so this is kind of part of the mission uh, of cyberism, uh, is to reverse the adversary advantage. We'll take a quick break here, but stay with us, because after the break, we'll hear a story from their threat research team and how they discovered a new piece of malware that's really interesting. This episode is sponsored by NetSuite. Okay, quick math. Less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs on headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a financial system that brings accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access it from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash darknets. That's NetSuite, spelled N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E, dot com slash darknet. Now, it's always fascinating to me when a security company exposes a certain threat actor in the world because it's always a good story. There's some shady activity group going on, a security company finds it, researches it, figures out what happens, and then lets the world know about it. Cyber Reason has so many of these stories where they faced off against adversaries. 
And so I asked Asaf to come on to tell us one of these stories. So my name is Asaf Dahan. I'm heading the uh, Nocturnus Threat Research Team at Cyber Reason. So there's this team inside Cyber Reason, which is called Nocturnus. And the Nocturnus team are security researchers who hunt through the massive data they've collected to try to find new threats nobody's ever seen before. So for instance, suppose some computer is demonstrating indicators of malicious behavior, but an antivirus scan can't find any vulnerabilities. So they narrow down what app or process of that system is doing bad stuff. And that might lead them to discover an unknown piece of malware. Malware that was just created by an adversary recently that has never been seen before in the security community. And this is what the Nocturnus team lives for. Now they'll reverse engineer that and dissect every part of the malware to try to figure out everything about it. Who made it? Where did it come from? What does it do? So this is where Asaf enters the scene and begins to investigate. And just, I'm curious, how many languages do you speak? <laughs> it's a, um, okay, uh, I, I speak 10 languages, not all uh, on the same level or the same level of fluency. But yeah, I speak 10 languages. 10? Lang- and yeah. how does that fit into doing threat research? <laughs> Actually, it fits in uh, quite well. Um, I think uh, one of the most important things to keep in mind when uh, working in the field of threat intelligence or threat research is that beyond the technical aspects of like how a certain malware works or uh, uncovering an infrastructure, you have to tie it to a global context or a geopolitical context, for, in, for instance, in, in that matter or other uh, research papers that we publish. Um, so the ability to have firsthand, uh, almost unmediated uh, linguistic capabilities is quite helpful. Uh, in our team, we, we, I think if we combine all the languages, so we speak like 15 languages, uh, I'm accounting for 10 of those. But <laughs> so it helps. Yeah, it really helps. Like, especially like if you go on the dark net, there are different, um, you know, hacking forums. Uh, there's some slang that is unique for hackers or just like reading um, uh, documents, uh, whether it's uh, phishing lure content and others. So it really gives you some um, some understanding or better grasp of what is actually going on beyond the technical aspects of how, you know, the bits and bytes of how a certain malware works. So Asaf has been with Cyber Reason for five years now. And back in early 2020 is when he saw something interesting, a loose thread worth tugging at. Back then, we, we started noticing some uh, interesting looking uh, fishing lures that were uh, quite politically charged, targeted Middle Eastern entities, let's call it that way. And, uh, and they were very much focused on, on uh, targeting Arabic speakers. The phishing emails were written in Arabic. And they were from a group called the Popular Front of the Liberation of Palestine, which I don't understand Middle Eastern culture or politics all that much. But from Wikipedia, it looks like this is a group that's fighting to retake Palestine back. So this group sent out phishing emails with malicious software attached. Or did they? Upon closer analysis, it looks like the emails didn't actually come from that group, but it was made to look like it was coming from them in order to get their targets to read the emails and open the attachment. Uh, We believe, so it's our assessment that they targeted political figures uh, within the Palestinian Authority that associated with Fatah, with the Fatah movement, um, as well as other political entities in the Middle East. So that, that was back in February 2020, and that's where we when we discovered the Spark backdoor. Hold on, I'm reading more on Wikipedia here, and I'm finding this fascinating. Palestine is a sovereign state that controls the Gaza Strip and West Bank, which both border Israel. And yes, there are many land disputes between Israel and Palestine, but there's also internal disputes just within Palestine itself. I mean, look at what happened in 2007 at the Battle of Gaza. At the time, the Gaza Strip was controlled by Fatah. But Hamas, another faction within Palestine, waged a military-style attack against Palestine itself in an attempt to take over the state. So you had Fatah and Hamas fighting to the death over who would be in control of the Gaza Strip. It was bloody, and Hamas took over. So you see, the geopolitical aspect of all this is complicated. But Asaf grew up in Israel with multicultural parents and speaks 10 languages. So he understands this pretty well. 
So again, he said... They targeted political figures uh, within the Palestinian Authority that associated with the Farah movement, as well as other uh, political entities in the Middle East. And the emails say things like... Uh, For instance, it shows details. uh, Crown Prince held secret meeting with Israeli Prime Minister or... Details of the Crown Prince meeting with the U.S. Secretary uh, of State. So just from looking at the contents of these emails alone, we can already see that having a strong geopolitical understanding has a role in doing this threat research. But anyway, they examine these emails, and the emails have an attachment, which is an executable file. But the file name ends in .doc.exe, and it has an icon which looks like a regular Microsoft Word document. But when you double-click on that, it actually installs the backdoor, or malware. And then it actually opens a Word doc, a decoy document, as they say. So this wasn't really using any advanced vulnerability to get the malware installed on the system. But the Cyber Reason endpoint monitoring tools spotted this backdoor, which they called Spark. So it's a malware. It's a fully-fledged application that runs on the, on the victim's endpoints. Um, usually it could be laptops or desktop. And it gives the attacker pretty much a full access to... Um, to the computer or, or the endpoint. Uh, they can run different commands. They can uh, they can use it to steal information, to control in a way, if, if they choose to, they can also control the machine. They can uh, download additional uh, payloads, secondary payloads, which we see often, and uh, basically harvest any information. So this is, it, it's actually more of a, When you think about it, it's more of a spyware, actually. It's a tool that enables the attackers to uh, carry out espionage attacks on their target. Now, when they discover malware like this, they first check to see if this has been documented before. One popular malware repository is VirusTotal.com. So you could send it there and they'll tell you if they've ever seen it before. But that doesn't work very well for Arabic-written malware. So they checked other sources, and they determined they were dealing with a brand new piece of malware. So that happened in February 2020. Around, let's say, October, November 2020, uh, we started noticing new activity. We've been monitoring them since the discovery of Spark. Um, they've, they've had like uh, different uh, campaigns going on at the same time. But around October, November, we also noticed um, new tools that were never used or seen before uh, being used in this specific campaign. What drew our attention was actually the geopolitical context. We started seeing uh, different phishing lure documents pertaining to the Israeli peace process or normalization between uh, these, well, Israel and uh, and the Saudis, the Emirates, and other content uh, that is uh, more related to internal Palestinian domestic affairs. When doing threat research, you sometimes pull on a string and a whole fishing net comes up with it. The Cyber Reason Nocturnist team was uncovering a whole bunch of this threat actor's infrastructure. It wasn't just phishing emails and the Spark malware, but now they're seeing different kinds of malware and more email addresses of interest and watching how the hackers were communicating with this malware and so many more things to look into. Basically, we started following trail of evidence. So we know that the operators sent a phishing PDF to their their victims. That PDF contained a simple link to uh, either a Dropbox or a Google Drive archive file that was stored on either of those uh, platforms. And that archive file, whether it's a zip or R, it doesn't matter, contained uh, the backdoors. So one backdoor was Spark. The other backdoor was SharpStage, which I'm going to talk about later. And the third one was uh, Dropbook. Okay, interesting. Whoever these hackers were, were not using the same malware for every target. They had three different backdoors that they were trying to get installed on their victims' computers. Spark, SharpStage, and Dropbook. And these would all allow hackers to take full control over their victims' computers. And this gave them even more stuff to reverse engineer and to look for clues and what other tools the hackers might be using and who they were. Now, these viruses were interesting. Let's first look at SharpStage. 
basically once it's installed on, on the victim's machine, they can control the machine, they can run arbitrary commands, fetch information. But what's interesting about it is the exfiltration method is using uh, a Dropbox client. So they the code itself, in the code itself, we found an implementation of a Dropbox client. So once the hacker gets the information they needed from that computer they're in, they need to download that data. And you want to do that secretly, so nobody notices you're doing it. So how do you hide in the shadows of the wires? Well, they use Dropbox and sometimes Google Drive. Because so many people use Dropbox, it would look like normal traffic and blend right in without detection. Pretty clever. Another interesting thing that we saw is that um, the backdoor itself was targeting Arabic-speaking users. So uh, one of the first things that the malware does was to check whether uh, Arabic language was uh, installed on the infected machine. If it wasn't installed, the malware wouldn't work. So and it also, it's also a clever way to avoid most sandboxes. So uh, if you uploaded it to VirusTotal or like other uh, online sandboxes, it simply wouldn't run because uh, the default language is, is English, something that um, I think people need to be uh, more um, aware of because sometimes uh, files may seem benign or they, they may seem the, like they're not doing much. But once you dive into the code, you can see you know, the reason behind it. So that's, that was sharp stage. Um, the second backdoor that we discovered was Dropbook. And I think this is by far, I think, the most interesting one. Okay, so this malware called Dropbook was very similar. Once it's installed, it gives the hacker remote backdoor access into that computer, and it exfiltrates that data through Dropbox. But what's interesting with this one is how the hackers were able to control it remotely. See, every piece of malware must get instructions on what it should do once it's installed. Sometimes it's hard-coded in the malware itself. But other times, malware reaches out to another system to get those commands, asking, what should I do? And that remote system will then tell them what to do. And you might think these remote systems issuing commands to backdoor viruses are some secret and elaborate server somewhere, right? Well, as it turned out with Dropbook, it was just using Facebook to send commands to the malware. They actually used uh, Facebook fake accounts. So they, they created fake accounts on Facebook. Literally, when you look at the account, as you can see in our blog, there are, I mean, like, these accounts don't have uh, any friends, interests, like almost like zero details. But what they do have is like um, they have posts that uh, contain very obscure content. Some of it is, um, let's say, uh, it could be like encryption keys or it could be uh, um, a Dropbox API key. But, it, but we also found like Windows commands that uh, to run, like for creating persistence and other things like that. So that was, I think, one of the most, I guess, striking or shocking pieces that we uncovered during this investigation. It's the it's not only they were abusing, let's say, Dropbox or Google Drive to hide in plain sight, if you will. But that, I mean, a lot of bad actors do that. But they actually implemented a C2 uh, communication channel using uh, face Facebook fake accounts, which I think uh, is pretty cool. <laughs> he calls it pretty cool. It's weird how defenders have a certain respect for the attackers and how they work, because there really are so many similarities between the two, you know? Both the hackers and defenders love technology. They're both computer geeks. They love learning about ways to exploit systems. The only thing that's different is their motive on what to use computers for. And to be able to hunt for bad guys all day and to try to unravel their entire plot and expose them, that's pretty exciting. Well, first of all, uh, the geopolitical aspect was quite interesting because as an Israeli, I mean, you, you can't be, uh, you can't stay um, indifferent I guess, to, to what was going on at the same time. If we're talking about October, November 2020, it was right around the same time where Israel, with the help of the, the U.S., uh, were signing uh, peace accords or normalizations agreements with uh, Arab countries like the, the Emirates. There were talks with the Saudis and, and so on. So, you know, you read about it in the news, which is, you know, 
exciting on its own uh, coming from my part of the world. But when, once you see um, an actual attack that abuses this and, and like you see that there are political entities, let's call it that way, uh, that are trying to, um, to get intelligence, you know, using those back doors as spyware, um, you know, to, to carry out espionage campaigns uh, about that topic made it super interesting. I mean, when we find something that is uh, that exciting, we pull all-nighters. We sometimes work weekends, not because I'm I make, not because I'm a slave driver or I make anyone you know put in extra hours. It's just it's so exciting, and we're we're on it. I mean, like. As I, as I told before, I've been in this business for over 15 years now. I still like, when I wake up in the morning, I have this, I guess, curiosity. It's like, I think that's the, the main drive. It's like to solve problems, to solve mysteries. To me, really uncovering new acti activity uh, is very exciting. So they've spent about 10 months at this point tracking this threat actor, connecting dots, watching activity, and they have a fairly good understanding of what this group is doing, what their motivation is, and what tools they use. So once Asaf and his team gets to this stage, they can use the research they just did to enrich the cyber reason tools, to make it so their endpoint detection tools can spot the activity much quicker and more effectively. Of course, they consult with the customer too to let them know that they found this activity and this is what was going on. But the Nocturnus team doesn't just stop there. They're a curious bunch of people. And so the question on everyone's mind is, who would do such a thing? Who exactly is behind this targeted hacking campaign? Now, the victims appear to be highly targeted. This is not the result of some massive spam campaign. No, specific individuals were sent these phishing emails to lure them into opening the attachment. One way to try to figure out who's behind an attack is to take everyone who could possibly have done this and put them all together on a spreadsheet or something, like eliminate all the ones that seem unlikely. So for instance, you might get a list of the usual suspects here, cyber criminals, hacktivists, governments around the world, mercenaries for hire, and other APT groups. But now what? Well, the hacks didn't seem to be financially motivated, and cyber criminals typically are in it to make money. So you can sort of rule out that whole group. Next, you're starting to look at who would have interest in these Arabic-speaking political figures. Well, there's probably a bunch of nations around the world who simply don't have any interest with Palestine, so you can probably rule them out. So now you're left looking for who would have the motivation and the ability to hack into these people, and it narrows down the list even further. Now again, you see why it's so important to have geopolitical awareness to sort through all this. I can't imagine the mental calculus that must go into figuring this out. Like just asking the question, who would want to attack Palestine? Well, a lot of people, including people in Palestine themselves. I mean, just in 2007, they had a coup where Hamas used force to take over part of Palestine. And I'm sure that left a lot of unhappy residents there. So this gets pretty sticky to figure out. But there were some clues that led Cyber Reason to believe they were dealing with a threat actor called a mole rat. So we knew that there are uh, Arabic speaking, politically motivated group that has operated in the Middle East since uh, 2012. They mostly targeted the Middle East and North Africa region. Uh, but we've seen them uh, also target parliaments, for instance, in the in the U.S. and, and Europe. But the, the most of their uh, agenda seems uh, around government entities, political activists, politician diplomats. Because the team at CyberReason understood the threat actors in this geopolitical space, they started looking more into what this mole rat group does. Mole rats is a is quite a well defined activity group and um, or an, some would call it adversary, right? So the, the profile that uh, there have been reports on them for years, okay? So there's a, a lot of information about their modus operandi, like how they work, uh, what malware do they use, um, who are their targets, Okay, so let's look at some of those reports. FireEye calls this group Mole Rats, but Kaspersky calls this same group the Gaza Cyber Gang. According to FireEye, their first attack was against the Israeli government where they were able to take down the internet for the Israeli police force. And that campaign looked a lot like this one. A highly interesting email was sent to a specific target with the attachment that looked like a Word doc, and when you opened it, it installed the back door. 
It was a different backdoor they used back then, but still their tactics, techniques, and procedures were the same. But looking from there, I count 51 different threat intelligence reports by various security companies who have investigated mole rats in the last nine years. And when you have a bunch of reports that lists a lot of different targets, and you can see who the threat actors were trying to hack into, it starts to paint a picture as to who they might be. They have mostly targeted people in Palestine and Israel. But they've also targeted the US and UK and a few other countries. But I did my best to look through these reports. Never once do I see them list members of Hamas as their targets. But they do target Fatah. Hamas is the current acting government party of the Gaza Strip, a part of Palestine. Fatah controls the West Bank, the other part of Palestine. Hamas and Fatah both struggle for power in Palestine. So from my research, my conclusion is that mole rats is somehow allied with Hamas. Now, Hamas doesn't have many allies. I think only Qatar and Turkey have showed public support for them. But this activity doesn't lend way for me to believe that mole rats is from Qatar or Turkey. Cyber Reason didn't want to get into the specifics of who mole rats are exactly or who they might even be, because nobody knows for sure, and they don't want to suggest something that's incorrect. So I'm not sure to what degree mole rats might be connected with Hamas, if at all. But the evidence does suggest that they have aligned adversaries. So once we looked at the evidence of, of this new campaign and we correlated to uh, our previous discoveries and we correlated to other intelligence reports that were, um, were published in the threat intel community, and you look at the victims, and you look at, you consider geopolitical events, you can say that with, um, I don't know, moderate to high confidence that uh, it's likely mole rats uh, who's behind it. But again, I, I'll, I'll state that there's never, um, or there, it's very rare to have 100% attribution if you're not an intelligence agencies. That's why we always leave a margin uh, for errors. So that's, uh, but that's true for, for almost any, any intelligence report that you'll read um, that comes out of a vendor. And so it's fascinating to me that mole rats were targeting high up Fatah officials and stealing and collecting information from them. In, in this context, um, the intelligence may give them leverage in certain negotiations or, or let's say if, if you're not invited to the table, right, to take part of the discussion, you want to know what's going on on that, you know, on that on the table, you know, what, what was said there. I mean, there could be many reasons why a certain entity wa would want to uh, carry out an espi espionage operation. It could be to, um, to, to, but definitely to give them the advantage of knowing what's, what they shouldn't know. And then they can do different things with that knowledge. That's some shady, underhand, bad guy behavior for sure. To hack into a political opponent's computers just to spy on them. But that's what so many governments around the world are doing now. It's common knowledge that the NSA hacks into foreign governments all the time. So I guess the point is, don't trust anyone online, friends or enemies. So it's fascinating to see how Cyber Reason is able to track these groups and publish reports on them. And this helps make the world more secure because in their report, they show tons of different indicators and signs that you might have mole rats in your network. So antivirus companies all over can create new signatures in their products and security companies can detect their presence much quicker. But on top of that, all this research makes Cyber Reason, the detection tools, more enriched and robust at detecting bad behavior in the network. Our product is first and foremost, well, don't kill me for the buzzwords, right? But like, uh, is AI-based uh, using machine learning algorithms and mostly behavioral is based on behavioral detection. So uh, there are teams in Cyber Reason um, that are, I mean, that's their daily job to um, write detection rules based off behavior. Uh, the Nocturnus team, my team, uh, as, as an intelligence team, we, we pinpoint or we... Uh, 
We flag certain techniques as, let's say, more relevant or more interesting than others. But there are a lot of teams that work together inside the reason to make sure that uh, we're able to detect things behaviorally, uh, regardless to whether it's a known or unknown threat. Uh, this is not just a big data analytic platform. This is Lior again, the CEO of Cyber Reason. Today, Cyber Reason is operating in the uh, EPP world, uh, EDR, uh, XDR, and MDR. Basically, everything that related to detection and response uh, anywhere uh, in a big enterprise environment, we know how to find and understand if there is a hacking activity over there and then basically prevent it. Uh, so today, CyberReason has, uh, we call it the defense uh, platform. Uh, the, it's a, the most comprehensive platform that exists, really cover uh, uh, enterprises, we call it from endpoint to everywhere. Uh, really the ability to, to see everything uh, that hackers can do in an environment, monitor it 24 by 7 and, and finding those malicious operation with the operation-centric approach. Uh, we found out that the organization that uh, implementing and using this uh, approach, basically they're not just uh, more safer, they're uh, basically future uh, ready to uh, deal with any attack. Okay, yeah. Tell me about the products you have and what solutions yeah. you have. T today we have um, a full protection on the endpoint. The, the way that CyberReason think about protecting an organization, we call it from, the, uh, from endpoint to everywhere. Uh, so it started by deploying a sensor on every endpoint uh, that the company has. And over there, we have everything from antivirus, uh, next-gen antivirus, anti-ransomware, anti-fileless attack, uh, really the ability to prevent everything that is malicious on those endpoints. But we're not stopping there. This is just the beginning. Then we know how to collect data from each and every one of those uh, systems in real time. We collect all the data unfiltered. Uh, send this uh, data into our cloud uh, architecture. And over there, we're running the graph processing uh, in real time. Basically, we collect data from every endpoint that the organization has. And then we're analyzing all the data uh, in parallel. Basically, what we're doing, we're creating, uh, uh, building the network of relationship between everything to everything. So every process that's communicating with another process, every connection that's going in and out of the environment. Think about it as a big graph uh, that we're uh, uh, basically painting while kind of the data is flowing. So this has really enabled us to really understand the interaction of every process, every machine, every user with the world and within the inner groups. So every deviation from uh, abnormality, we, we know how to identify and we call it the evidence. So let's say that the process uh, usually communicated with X amount of processes and suddenly it's deviating uh, from the normality, we're marked as evidence. Uh, let's say that there is a connection between two computers that usually are not communicated, suddenly become communicated. We're going to mark it as a evidence as well. So the system is collecting endless amount of evidence as uh, the data flows through the system and then try to evolve the evidence to suspicions, basically to correlate multiple evidence together to a suspicions. And once there is enough suspicious, uh, then we collect them and correlate them to a malicious operation. So when CyberReason is triggering, hey, there is a malicious operation right now and we stopped it, uh, we can tell you the full story of what's happened. So this has really enabled us to go back and, and show you all the points and everything that the hackers did in order to be able to really understand uh, what they did, then we show how we blocked it, and then you can basically improve your capability in order to do uh, better in the future. So are you still disappointed you didn't get to fly fighter jets? R running cyber is an every day. It's like uh, flying a, a, a jet every day. So you don't need to do it in reality. You can do it in the cyber world. big thank you to Cyber Reason for sponsoring this episode. They obviously have a very sharp and skilled team over there, which is doing a great job at making their customers more secure. Remember their first customer they had where they found a whole bunch of malicious activity in the network? Yeah, well, all these years later, they're still a customer of Cyber Reason. 
Cyberreason doesn't just operate in the Middle East, they have offices all over the world. Boston, Tokyo, London, Tel Aviv, and France. If you're interested in learning more or even want a demo of their products, visit cyberreason.com. The show is made by me, the pizza rat, Jack Recider. Sound design this episode by the memory intensive, Andrew Merriweather. Editing help this episode by the backlit, Damien. And our theme music is by the perpetual machine known as Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though when I was a little kid, I used to watch cartoons where bears lived up in the clouds. But the reality is, mole rats live in the clouds. This is Darknet Diaries. Darknet Diaries.